My name is Kim Weeks, and this is Practicing Well. The yoga and wellness industries are large and growing. It's really interesting to ask yourself why this is. Is it because we're so stressed? Is it because of other socio-political and policy reasons that I list out and describe in the introduction to this podcast? Or is it just that as we evolve as a species, we become aware of the fact that a long, slow, steady, deep breath is our birthright and something that we can do, we can create, we can cultivate, we can achieve anytime we want. Amanda Kingsmith is somebody I wanted to talk to about this very thing. She's the founder of the Mastering of the Business of Yoga, MBOM, and that's also the name of the business that she runs, which is such an interesting business model within the yoga and wellness industry. Those regular listeners of this podcast will know that um, I bring on guests and have many conversations about how it is that yoga teachers can find their best place in society. Just like this podcast is designed to help you live your best life. I really would like to help yoga teachers around the world have as many resources as possible for being their best selves in their profession. So uh, Amanda and I sat down and talked a few weeks ago. I'm so excited for you to listen to this podcast because you know, her perspective is um, about eight, nine years old. She became a yoga teacher in the teens, so less than 10 years ago, but has been podcasting on being a support for yoga teachers by drawing from expertise of those, as she says, who have come before her and to provide a pathway or some guidelines for those who are coming after her and simultaneously to just learn along the way. And so we talk about a lot of really interesting things, how her business evolved, how she responded to the demand of various teachers wondering in especially the 21st century, how it is to differentiate yourself in an industry where there are so many yoga teachers and relatively speaking, fewer students, meaning the ratio between the number of teachers and the number of students interested in learning from those teachers has really narrowed. The gap between those two has gotten smaller. Amanda has got some really great ideas, also great services and an absolutely wonderful and fascinating perspective and so much optimism around how this industry has evolved in the hybrid and online and in real life space. So I look forward to knowing what you think about this podcast as always. Um, Drop me an audio message or send me an email. This is Amanda Kingsmith, the podcast host of MBOM and owner of the company by the same name. Here it is. Well, Amanda Kingsmith, I'm so happy to meet you and see you. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. And yeah, of I, course. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, it's so great. And so we'll dive into all of these topics, uh, how it is that what we're doing intersect with each other, perhaps, and all these things I just want to learn from you. Tell me about the name of your business. When we found you doing the research uh, for wanting to dive into various yoga teachers around the world who are reaching through and into the yoga world in new and creative ways. I was so struck by the name of your business, the mastery, you know, of the business of yoga. So what is the mastery of the business of yoga? Tell me about that. Yeah. So when I was brainstorming names, I was like, I don't really know what to call this. Like, I know I want to teach yoga teachers about the business of yoga And I want to teach them the intersection of yoga and business, essentially. You know, my background was in business. I was working in yoga. I really recognized how I was not trained in it. Like when I went to my 200-hour teacher training, you know, we talked about insurance and 
I think that was all honestly, like it was like 30 minutes and I was like, okay, sure. I guess that's all I need to know. And then I, you know, started teaching and I was like, oh no, there's like a lot that I need to know. Like I, I wasn't taught how to actually get in a studio, get a job, create a sustainable living, all that type of stuff. And so decided to create this podcast and I was brainstorming with my husband and he's like, what about the idea of like an MBA? So like a master's of business administration, but for yoga. So it's like MBO. And I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. So it's like, like a master's of the business of yoga. And it was like, okay, that doesn't ring quite well. So we decided on mastering the business of yoga. And that's kind of just where it came from. And I know that there's people I've talked to have been like, well, I don't consider myself a master at anything. And I understand, you know, the context of that. Like sometimes people will get this idea of like, okay, I'm going to master this, which means there's no more room to grow. And that's not really how I think about it. I, I feel like there's always room for us to grow. And especially within business, it's changing constantly. You know, like when I started in 2016, podcasts were not mainstream. I had guests come on the show who were like, I'm sorry, what are we doing? Are you recording me? What is this? Oh, I'm washing dishes. And I'm like, sorry, can you stop washing your dishes? Cause this is like an audio thing that people are going to listen to. You know, things were different. Like reels didn't exist. TikTok didn't exist. Instagram stories didn't even exist back then. And so sure we can master the business of yoga yet within that it's like, obviously we're still going to grow. We're still going to learn. We're still going to change. You know, we're evolving as humans and then industry evolves as well. So yeah, that's a little bit about the background of that. It's so interesting. So, so, and that's the thing that I thought about most was when I saw, (laughs) when I discovered your podcast and then I looked at the history of it, I was like, oh my God, she did it in 2019. Oh my God, 2018. Oh my God, 2017. And I kept going back all the way to 2016 and had that same thought, which is, I wonder what made her think, okay, this is the mastering of the business of yoga. It's a really interesting name. Um, I did, I have to say, I had heard about it, but the OM, because I'm a mother, it had caught me and I thought it was about mom. I just sort of read it too quickly. I thought it was MB like mom yoga. And I was like, oh, yeah. but that was just me kind of scrolling too quickly. So when I really took it in, I was thinking, okay, well then did she build her business around the podcast? So is that what you did? Or did you think about your, you know, sort of explicit revenue streams in the yoga business bootcamp and yoga teacher toolbox. Did those come first or did the podcast podcast come first or how did that go? Yeah. So the podcast came first and I built the business around the podcast, which quite honestly is not a model that I would recommend for somebody. Um, it's, it's hard to grow a podcast, but so here's the thing is like, I had I actually had been podcasting since 2014. My husband and I have a travel podcast called The World Wanders that we started in 2014. So like way back before podcasts were really, really mainstream, you know, <laughs> like I've been doing this for a long time and the industry has changed, changed a lot since then. And so when I was thinking about this idea of like, okay, I want to teach people business, but I also need to learn it myself in this industry because it's very different. I'd worked in corporate you know, corporate America, essentially corporate Canada, I'm Canadian. Um, and so it's very different, you know, yoga is more, it's more feminine, it's softer, it's more heart centered. So yes, I have the background, I have the tools, but I was a little bit like, I don't really know how to do this either. And there's no resources out there for people, but there's yoga teachers that are doing this full time. So what are they doing? How can I figure out what they're doing? And I knew from podcasting for two years already that the best way to get people to give you their time for free is if you give them something in return, i.e., hey, I'll promote your business to my audience. So when I started the podcast, I didn't have any of the plans for a bigger business. I just thought, hey, I want to teach yoga. I'm getting paid 35, 45 bucks a class. I can do basic math. The math in my head is telling me to even make like a decent living where I can pay my bills. I need to teach 25 classes a week. I don't have that type of capacity. That sounds crazy to me. Um, Sounds very exhausting. You know, I'd already experimented with teaching, you know, five classes a day, too much, way too much energetically for me. So I'm like, okay, there's got to be a better way for this. So for me, it was like, I can't be the only one wondering this. So let me learn from other people who are ahead of me and teach people who are behind me and 
hopefully be able to make a sustainable living teaching yoga. And what I couldn't have predicted was how many other people were like, yes, I need this. I never learned this in teacher training. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, I want to make money too doing this and passionate about it, but I, I don't want to teach 25 classes either. And so those are the people that ended up coming into my sphere that, you know, I started interacting with, networking with, teaching, learning from, et cetera, et cetera. And then I started building the business more over the years and the courses came, I think the first edition of them came out in the spring of 2018. So it'd been like a little over two years since I'd launched the show before the courses came out. And what made you think about those specific, I mean, they're pretty obvious, right? It's like the yoga business boot camp, which is to say you're, and you know, correct me here if I'm like, you know, missing some of the narrative, but you've just come out with the, of an RYT 200. You want to teach, you want to share what you've learned, this joy that you have on the mat. You'd like to explain and give to others, but you don't exactly know how to do this in a way that isn't enervating, that isn't exhausting, and that is a sustainable living. And so let me give you a boot camp exposure to how to do this so that you can get out there teaching, you know, profitably and sustainably as quickly as possible. So that's the first one, right? Yeah. So yoga teacher toolbox is the first one now. Oh, it's, cool. Okay. So yoga teacher toolbox is for yoga teachers who just want to learn how to teach in studios. So mm -hmm. to me, kind of the first step of becoming a yoga teacher is like, you need to get some mm -hmm. teaching experience. You need to find your voice, you know, get clear with your sequencing, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, the best way to do that is to start start teaching. So that really teaches teachers how to get jobs as yoga teachers. And then yoga teacher or yoga business bootcamp, sorry, takes people kind of to the next level. So it's like, okay, I'm teaching a little bit. Now I'm ready to do more of my own thing, which is something I really recommend for teachers. I don't think that teaching in studios forever, especially if you're doing it full-time is going to be sustainable in terms of making enough money to survive. I think we need to be offering workshops or registered programs, retreats. We should build, be building our own email lists, you know, thinking about networking, marketing, all that type of stuff. And so that really really helps people with that side of things. So yeah, it's kind of twofold with that, where it's like, if you're really, really new, if you were never taught this in teacher training, teacher toolboxes for you. Um, if you've already learned all that, you're kind of at the point where you want the next level, then a yoga business bootcamp is, is there for you. That's awesome. It sort of ref <laughs> reflects or reveals my wall street background because <laughs> I thought, well, just get to the business immediately and then figure it all out later. But I love that you have, uh, <laughs> you know, correct, reversed my uh, analysis of what you offer with first, you know, really honing in on the skills of yourself as a yoga teacher, because there's a lot of different skills. You know, mm -hmm. some teachers can lead a huge class, other people connection is, you know, their jam. And there's um, some people are interested in alignment and others are interested in a faster flow. So there's just so many things. And, you know, in some of your podcasts, I've heard you talk about that with other guests, this, the depth of what you can potentially offer. So what did you learn as a teacher? So what did you learn? How did you come up with then the yoga teacher toolbox? Do you have a specific set of, um, did you set up your own sort of rubric where you were like, okay, these are the top 10 ways that yoga teachers can differentiate themselves or can really learn about themselves. I'm imagining that this toolbox is the kind of fertile ground from which your coaching has also sprung. Is that true? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting, like just because I didn't have this like big business plan, which is not really something I would recommend for people going into something like this. I was kind of like, I don't really know where this is going. I was doing a lot of other, you know, freelancing and just other things at the time. Um, I've always been very like multi-passionate. So my hands were in lots of honey jars and I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And so coaching really came from, you know, I'm putting out this podcast and then people are asking to work with me one-on-one. -on -one and I'm like, okay, sure. Like I can work with you one-on-one. -on -one. I'm happy to, you know, chat, share all that type of stuff. And what I realized was, you know, 
obviously I need to charge for that. And obviously the fee that I'm going to charge for that is going to be higher than what I could offer for a course. And so I was doing intro calls with people. And what I was finding is that a lot of people wanted one-on-one support, but many of them were not able to pay a fee that I was willing to work for. And so I was like, well, why don't I put a lot of this stuff in a course? I think one of the things I like about coaching is that when I coach, I don't coach based on the programs that I've offered. I coach to the person, right? So it's like somebody, like I just started with a new client, for example, she told me, Hey, you know, this is what I've got going on. This is what I'd like help with. I'm not like, Oh, sorry. You know, this is what I do. I help you build your resume and a teaching demo and, you know, a website. I can't do this. So it is very different. Um, but I basically decided with the course, like actually, so the course started as one course the i had like one free module for it which was maybe called yoga teacher toolbox or something like that or it was a lesser price version or or something i can't remember exactly but i basically had everything between the two courses in one course and what i got feedback on through beta testers and the first people that went through was like oh well this course isn't for me because like it's too basic like i already have a resume i've already taught in studios i don't need this information and i was like okay well like no worries just head on over to like you know module 5 and that's where you can pick up and people were like, oh, okay. Like I didn't realize, I just thought the course wasn't for me. And, you know, maybe I, I shouldn't be paying for this. And then other people who were like, you know, I'm just so overwhelmed. Like there's just too much information. And so I kind of sat with that and was like, okay, well, what could I do to make this a little bit easier, more digestible for people? Okay. What does somebody need when they're first starting? And what does somebody need once they've got a little bit of that teaching skills kind of underneath them? You know, what could I support them with? So that's, that's kind of how that evolved. Does that answer that question? It totally answers the question. And it leads me to another thought, which is what do you find? Well, let me back up a step with my question and say that I've been teaching yoga full-time since 2002. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that time, I've owned a yoga studio for about 14, 13, 14 years. And then um, to be frank, I backed out of that um, during the great recession, not just because of the, and this is again, and I, I don't know actually what, how the recession affected Canadian yoga teachers versus American yoga teachers versus other, you know, global yoga teachers, but coastally um, in the United States, it became much more difficult to run a yoga studio, you know, through the 0809 sort of situation and in concurrent with that, I had two kids. And so mm -hmm. I found myself with my very, my first baby and realizing I had to, I wanted to make a choice. I had lots of different kind of, you know, paths I could have taken. And one of them, the most sustainable one for the business was ultimately the one that was most problematic for me as a parent, because I was going to have to go kind of wall to wall childcare and throw myself into the business and really figure out how to innovate my way out of it, which I think lots of yoga studios did. And um, in that process, I went through a really, well, I went through a very interesting process deciding that um, it, it wasn't something that to teach to, you know, I had 20 teachers at the time. I had several locations. I had, you know, a lot going on. And I lost my own practice, my own sustainable kind of approach to my own practice, because I myself as a teacher got lost in the midst of, you know, serving not just my clients and students, but also my sort of the business, the business baby and my other babies. And mm -hmm. so I, I say that all to say that you have, you have been exposed to talked with deeply hundreds of people who are mm -hmm. not just yoga studio owners, but yoga teachers. So what do you see in the business over these last six or so years that you've been running it? What do you see that studios struggle with? What do you see that teachers struggle with? And on the other hand, what do you see that they succeed at? How, what, what it is it that they do really well? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. That's a fun question. I mean, 
things have changed so much. And I think one thing that was really interesting for me when I first started was interviewing people who were way, way, way ahead of me, you know, people like you, like yourself, you know, people who'd been teaching since the early two thousands, even like the late nineties and who could share with me how different the yoga industry was. I mean, we were just talking before we hit record about how Jason Crandall has been on my show. He's coming on your show soon. And I'm sure he'll talk about this if you, if you prompt him to, but just talking about how, you know, he's like, when I teach teachers now, it's like, you know, they complain because they only have 500 Instagram followers. He's like, I had to convince like five people to come to a workshop because nobody had any idea what yoga was, <laughs> you know, like so many of these teachers have like paved the way for those of us who are teaching True. now in yeah. terms of like, we don't have to sell yoga as a practice because yoga is mainstream now. People understand it. And to me, that was very eye-opening because as somebody who entered the industry in like, you know, 2015, where there's a million yoga teachers, everyone and their dog has gotten a yoga teacher training and studios only have so much capacity and whatnot. It's like, well, how do I stand out? How do I get a job? You know, I had people who were like, oh yeah, like people asked me to do a training and then invited me to teach. And I'm like, what world are you living in? Like that is so different from how I started, but there's pros and cons to all, right? It's like, you can see the side of like, you're invited to teach and asked to teach because they don't have teachers and they need to get the word out. Yet now we live in this world where we don't have to sell yoga. People know what yoga is. And so to me, I think that's a huge, huge difference just between like the people who, you know, really came before me in the decade before. And, you know, hopefully for people who are listening, who are newer to yoga, they can really hear that perspective of like, okay, we don't have to do that work. People have paved that road for us already, which is really great. Um, and then I think a big change has happened during the pandemic. I mean, the industry went through a 360, right? Prior to 2020, teaching yoga online was kind of kind of out there. I remember I started offering privates online because I was traveling full-time and there was nobody to learn from about that. Like nobody, I setting prices, I couldn't find anything online about it. I had no and this information. this was what year? That's amazing. Like 2018. That's incredible. Talk. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I didn't have a lot of clients, but I was just trying to build my business. I was doing it a little bit. Um, I was living in Mexico at the time, which is where I currently live as well. But my Spanish was very bad at the time. So the problem I was having is that I wasn't able to teach in Spanish. So I wasn't able to just go to a local studio and get a teaching gig. And I was living in Mexico City, which was less touristy than it is now. And there was no studios offering classes in English. So I had to get creative. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll see if I can, I'll put an ad on the internet and see if I can get some clients online who want to learn in English. And I'll create some YouTube videos and I'll create some courses and I'll put them out there and just see what sticks. And now since the pandemic, I mean, that's a whole like industry in and of itself. Like teachers have these really amazing opportunities to spread their wings from the studios and build their businesses online, you know, with Zoom and websites and YouTube and Vimeo and Uscreen and Offering Tree and all these amazing softwares. It's like, we can do it. It's affordable. People understand it. Everyone knows how to use Zoom now. Like my 90-year-old grandmother knows how to use Zoom. So it's like, you know, things are just a lot easier since then in that regard. And I think that it is one silver lining from the pandemic. Obviously, we've had a lot of challenges and hardships come through the pandemic. Um, But I feel like that is one silver lining, especially for our industry, is that people understand that yoga can be done online. So I'd say that that would be another change. I mean, studios have gone through, I think, the most biggest roller coaster ride of of all of us just through the pandemic, especially for those that were in areas of heavy restrictions, heavy lockdowns, opening, shutting, opening, shutting, you know, that's really hard on businesses. I was just looking through old episodes the other day, just pulling some from the archive stuff for 2023 and just looking at like how many people are doing different things. And one thing I noticed is a lot of studio owners I've interviewed over the years are not studio owners anymore. And part of that was the pandemic. So while I think a lot of teachers have spread their wings and created their own businesses and stuff, which is really amazing. Unfortunately, a lot of studios have had to shut down, which, which, which is too bad. Well, and it is too bad. And, you know, I think it, it like COVID accelerated so many trends that were already in place. And I want to pin two things that you said that I 
think we're accelerating first the online teaching. And I don't, I want to come back to the creativity, the creation that you applied to seeing what would stick back in the late, the mid to late teens of your sort of online, your hybrid yoga offerings, which is, <laughs> I don't know, there would, did we have that word? Were we calling it that? You know, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. And then, and then the other thing, the other acceleration is that, you know, as more, I mean, in the introduction to my podcast, it was so funny when I listened to yours and I've listened to others, I was thinking, Oh God, I, why did I talk so much? <laughs> my introduction is way too long, but you know, I, there's a lot that I want to accomplish and tackle in this podcast. One of uh, which one item of which is the idea that yoga um, generations exist within a two to three year period now versus the generations we typically define just in society as, you know, people birthing people and, you know, generations of like 20, 22 years, whatever it is. And the reason I say, point that out is because the self-regulating self global market of yoga enables, and in fact required that studios offer teacher trainings as another revenue stream, another channel to keep the lights on and keep the bills paid and keep the students happy and just keep fresh, you know, energy coming into the studios. But that necessarily means or meant still means that at the time when I started teaching, for example, exactly, as you said, people were invited to teach. I mean, it was sort of this, we see that you've got a great practice or we see that you were really you know, interested yoga teacher trainee, and we think you could build a class. And so, as I learned many times over as a yoga studio owner, just because you're a great student does not necessarily mean you will be a great teacher. There's so many introverted aspects to yoga. One of the things I like to say is that yoga is inherently an offline activity. It's necessarily something you're doing offline, going into yourself. And so my question is, is to sort of talk about what it is that you saw in these yoga studio, in the teachers, how have they innovated beyond the closing of the yoga studios when, or, or in this ever-changing market, when now that we have these teacher yoga teacher generations being minted kind of every year, every two years, every three years, the ratio between the available teachers and the available students is much smaller than it was. Let's just say it was 30 to one when I started teaching, I'd say it's now probably five to one or four to one. Mm -hmm. So how have you seen teachers really spread their wings and differentiate, differentiate themselves, diversify and really grow with that mm -hmm. kind of competition? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. I think one thing that's, that's been really interesting to see has been, you know, just the opportunity to kind of start their own businesses. And I think kind of prior to this like hybrid model or online model, it's like, I think there were, there were yoga teachers that were maybe disgruntled with the systems they were working in. Like, you know, they work at studios, maybe they don't see eye to eye with the studio owner. Maybe they're in the, like the most popular time slot or the most popular teacher. They're bringing a lot of people into the studio yet. They're making 50 bucks a class, you know, they're not getting anything more from it. And they recognize all of this Yet they're also smart enough to know that there's a lot that goes into running a studio, right? Like running a studio is not easy. I've worked in management and digital marketing for studios for, you know, seven, eight years now. And there's a lot that goes into it. You know, studio owners are not just teachers. They're not just teachers who get to pick their own schedules and pay themselves as they want. They wear a lot of hats and, you know, they do the work a lot of the time to get the bums in the seats. And that's not easy, especially these days when there's a lot of competition Yet at the same time, I think there are teachers who, you know, they recognize this and they know they didn't want to own a studio, especially with big overheads and maybe managing other teachers, managing schedules, payroll. And They're risk. like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Risk, risk for sure. Yeah. But they're like, I don't want to teach in the studio model anymore. And so now there's this opportunity that exists where it's like, Hey, I get a zoom pro account for what, like 1499 a month. I can set up a website for you know, 20 bucks a month, something like that. 
I can plug a Zoom link in. I can get software that easily allows people to pay for my classes, get a link. I don't have to do any of it. And then people can come. So all of a sudden I've got my own students who are coming to my classes and I take a hundred percent of the profit with very little overhead. All you need is, you know, a beautiful spot, maybe in your house, if you've got a fireplace or a big window, if you've got like a basement where you can set something up, you know, you can teach from those spaces and you can do it with an iPhone. You can do it with a pretty basic, um, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Oh, camera? Cam- or, yeah. Or the Logitech or whatever. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like looking <laughs> yeah. at mine and I'm like, what is this thing called? <laughs> webcam, <laughs> webcam. Webcam. That's right. it. Thank you. I'm like, what is the word for this? Um, yeah. You just need a basic webcam. I think mine was like, you know, 50, $60, something like that. And, you know, maybe some earbuds, some like AirPods or some Bluetooth headphones, or you could, you know, splurge from microphone. I know the studios I was working with got the, um, blanking on the name for this as well. Maybe there was the a road, microphone. The road. Yeah, the road wireless go. Yeah. Thank you. I <laughs> say that because I'm looking today. at all of those items in my room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, a bit more expensive if you're just starting out. But at the same time, if you're like, if you're somebody who is maybe thinking about overhead of a studio, the road wireless go is not going to break the bank. You know, it's like 150 bucks for like the whole mic set expensible thing that you can you can purchase for your business. And it's like, okay, so we've set up our business now. And I don't even have to leave my house. Like this is a huge opportunity for a lot of yoga teachers that I think have been kind of over having busy classes, full classes, big followings have been working their butts off for, you know, however many years they've been doing it for, and they don't want to teach for studios anymore. And the hustle, I mean, because it's almost, I mean, I don't know in in Canada, but in the United States. I, d- I mean, I'm thinking out off the top of my head after 20 years of teaching, if I knew, ever knew anybody, I know one woman who did not like, no, that's not true because she went to two studios within the same business. So she was, e- so the point I'm making is that the hustle is that as a successful yoga teacher, you have to be teaching in more places, more, more than one place. You're not going mm-hmm. to have all of your students in, unless you're working part-time, but if you're a full-time teacher, you're going to be in various parts of town because your students aren't going to go across town for you. Some of them will, but the majority won't, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was living in actually in Atlanta for like an early portion of my career when I started the podcast as well. And very different. I'm from like a small town in, in Western Canada. So very, very different vibe. And one of my very, very best friends there was teaching yoga full-time at that point. And she was driving hours every day. Like she's like, I have my car like loaded with snacks, water, you know, like electrolytes, changes of clothes, all that stuff. Cause she's like, if I like spill coffee on my shirt, it's like, I either teach in a dirty shirt or, you know, like I, I don't have time to go home. Cause she was just teaching studio to studio to studio. And I was like, you know, that was very eye opening for me. Like, damn, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of work. It's like, and when do you do your practice in there? Because, you know, at the heart of, I think, being a great yoga teacher, we have to have our self-practice. I think that that's like, you know, got to be like the core of what we do. And it's like, how do you do that if you're teaching five classes at three studios and maybe you're going from one to another, back to one, to another, back to another one. It's like, when do you eat? When do you take care of yourself? When do you do admin for yourself? When do you run errands? Mm -hmm. You know, all that type of stuff is so important. So yeah, I think let's take all that out and you can just run your classes from your home and you can cook yourself nourishing meals and you don't have to be in your car. You don't have to pay for gas. Like what a, what an amazing opportunity. Right. And with it comes work. Of course, we still have marketing. We still have admin. There is stuff that we do have to do that. I think some teachers don't want to do, but I do think there is a lot of opportunity with that. It's so interesting listening to you describe it that way, because I'm thinking back to my early days of teaching. In fact, I don't, yeah, I had just, it was maybe my first year of teaching and I was teaching in a studio that was really successful in Northern Virginia. I had moved from New York um, down to Washington, DC. And so there's a, you know, not unlike Atlanta, huge population density. So there's lots of opportunities, especially as yoga studios were just beginning to open. And this was a time when you know, there were waiting lists 
for yoga classes at 1030 on a Wednesday morning. I mean, it's just, it's just mind blowing to think about that versus now, but that's, what's so interesting about the business of yoga and how much it's evolving and changing. But this teacher that I had, I guess we probably had begun teaching at about the same time, about the same age. And we're looking at some of these choices, like, you know, the hustle across down the, everything you've just described, exactly those things, like how much will this studio pay? And wait, do I get a you know, a bump over 10 or do I this, or just so many different kind of negotiations and thinking. And also as I'm, as I've seen on your podcast multiple times, the wonderful benefit of being able to establish private client work where you get a much Mm -hmm. higher per dollar hour um, pay, but that requires more training and it requires a whole different skill set of relating to your students and, and, and keeping your clients going with you. But she said, you know, I'm actually going to piece out of this whole thing because how, how ungrounded I get when I drive all over the place in my car, burning fossil fuel, which is not contributing to climate change. In fact, it's doing the opposite makes me feel, this is just this teacher talking. It's just stuck with me all these years, makes me feel, or that I'm not really teaching yoga because I'm just draining myself. I'm draining the earth and I don't have an opportunity to ground or really teach. And so for her, for her temperament, that just didn't work. And again, this was early days. This is the odds, mm-hmm. you know, was not the teens when, I, well, when things are just basically different. So I'm interested in, so let's, let's just thought experiment this. Okay. It's 2022. So much has changed. You have such an interesting perspective in watching this. I mean, we call it like V2 aspect of the industry, you know, this sort of, you know, we've we've got through, we've got through 20 years of it from the late nineties to now. I have lots of people coming on my podcast who are like, Hey, I'm the OG from like the seventies. So don't even talk to me. So it's interesting (laughs) talking to them, like starting practice and teaching like in the sixties and seventies, it's amazing. But let's just say we're in V2. Let's say we're really like maturing as a market. And we have yoga teachers essentially running their own online studios of 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 people, whatever. Where does that leave the yoga studio community? What do you what would you recommend or what are you seeing trending in successful yoga studios in the context of all this change? Yeah, yeah. Another really great question. Um This is an interesting one. So I was working with two studios quite closely. One is actually in Northern Virginia, one's in Western Canada. And so very different demographics, very different markets. And we're also hit by the pandemic very differently because of the way that the different governments responded. And it's been interesting watching them because it's been slow to come back. And both of them have had the best success by offering hybrid classes. So pretty much every single class that they do, they also stream online. And I mean, this kind of started with like a need, like that was the only way to do things, right? It's like the government has said, nobody can come in the studio. The only way to keep going is to do online. But then it's like, okay, so we can have limited people in the studio. So it's like, we have all these policies, procedures, you know, cleaning protocols. It's like, you know, a studio that held 40 before it can hold like a max of eight Um, so of course we have to still like live stream because we can't bring people back in and people were still uncomfortable, you know, cause this is like late 2020 getting into early 2021. Some people's comfort levels were fine coming. Other people were not ready, but going into like 2023, I'm flabbergasted quite honestly that, you know, we're still doing hybrid classes and that they're working. And the thing is, is that people who knew these studios or knew these teachers who had moved away or never lived there and were never able to practice with them unless they were visiting bought passes and they bought memberships and people stopped putting their passes on hold when they went on vacation or when they went to, I mean, in in Western Canada, there's like a huge snowbird population, right? So it's like a lot of retired Canadians head South for the winter. So it's like those people at that studio always pause their membership for you know, they'd start heading with like snowfall, maybe November and they come back around May. So they're gone for about six months, let's say. 
They'd pause their membership. So they never canceled, but they always paused. And we also got people because, you know, this particular studio is in a tourist town that's beautiful in the summer. It's in the Rocky Mountains that did the opposite where they come north for winter and they have summer homes or they rent a home for the whole time. And so they have memberships that they only use. Now, all of a sudden, these people can practice all year round. Like how amazing is that? Now they have the opportunity to practice with this studio that they love because of these classes. And so I know I I stepped away from the studio in Canada, you know, close to a year ago because I had a baby at the beginning of 2022. So I've been mostly on maternity leave and, but it's just, you know, the end of 2021 conversations, it's like so interesting to be like, there's no end in sight for this hybrid. Like it's working. Right. Right. And it's, it's different. And people are coming back into the studio. Now people are massless. People are comfortable for the most part. You know, the studio is filling again. People are craving that, right? Like they want community yet at the same time, people still want online. So I think that at this point where we're at is that I think studios still serve a purpose. They still think they serve a place. They're still like the center of our communities. People want that. But people are also looking for opportunities where they can take these studios and these teachers they love anywhere in the world. With them. That's a great Mm -hmm. way of saying it. They want to take the studios with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was cool for me because like, you know, I'm from this place and I like to go spend summers there, but I do not like Canadian winter. (laughs) I love to travel. I work online. Um, for me, it's a lot better to be abroad during the cold months that I don't want to be there for. And so it's kind of like every year I'd say bye to the studio, you know, I'd say, okay, I'll see you when the snow thaws, like, you know, I'll be back in a couple of months. And now it's like, you know, it was weird to me at first. I'm like, wait, I can practice with you guys from Panama or Mexico or America or my parents' lake house. Like what? This is so like foreign and cool to me. And is it the same as being in the studio? No, it's not. I would prefer to be in the studio in that space, like feel the energy, but just being able to practice with my favorite teachers and get the classes that I know and love is a huge plus. So I think that's something I've seen in my experience. It's working really well for teachers or for studios. Sorry. Totally. And I just want to pin amplify whatever the things are that very thing, because the most transformative restorative class that I ever took have ever taken. I mean, I've been practicing since the nineties, you know, the most transformative restorative yoga class that I've ever taken was in April of 2020 from my bedroom, which had become, of course, my makeshift yoga studio. We, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the unbelievable luck of my family having just done a rebuild, like we built our rebuilt our, we kind of remodeled our house. Mm -hmm. And I had said in the remodel, I just want to have this really beautiful yoga space with windows. You know, we just, you know, we were able to kind of, you know, just, um, you know, create a palette uh, for it. And so it wound up working out really lucky for me because that's where I was teaching, but I hadn't even thought about that space being a place where as a working mother, I could really rest into myself with my kids down the hallway, going to sleep, my husband, putting them to bed or whatever, but knowing that I wasn't spending any of that time commuting to go take the class, dealing with my own social anxiety of being around people, which I get over once the class starts, because I'm so glad to be there. But just the feelings of being around a lot of people and parking and paying for it and traffic and getting home. And like, I don't know, having somebody cut you off and you're in your total yoga Zen, you know, on the way home and, you know, nothing says Zen like rush hour traffic. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so all of that just evaporated and I was able to focus on my, and take in my teacher's instructions and what it, you know, whatever the sequencing, all the things of the class, And I just noticed, hang on, like, I'm pretty sure at least at that point, my thinking was that how could Zoom go away when a class like this one delivered so, helped me create inside myself so much good. And so I wonder if, and I think about the population you were talking about in your town, the snowbirds, who I've noticed anyway, that older um, 
students are less mm-hmm. likely to come back into the studio when they have the hybrid option because then they don't have to worry about contracting COVID and still having yeah. the- Or know, any other virus, right? Or any other virus, exactly. And so I, I do think that there are these, I'm sure that studios are doing this now. I imagine you're you know learning this from them right now, but beginning to understand how to market to different populations online, how to reach these older people who may not be like scrolling IG the way the rest of us do, or, you know, word of mouth marketing, whatever it is to try to reach different segments of the yoga student population online or in sort of a hybrid environment. So it's interesting in the context of this thought experiment, we're discussing like where the hybrid classes might be in five years, 10 years, whatever, and how the yoga teachers who have their own student bases will potentially fold back into the studios? Do you think it'll just be through workshops and like kind of one-off things? Or how do you think that's going to look? Like how does the online yoga studio reintegrate or integrate back into the bricks and mortar yoga studio? Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I think that there's some offerings that maybe are just better in person. Like I know you know, like we just passed the, the winter solstice, for example, like getting together and doing like 108 ohms, it doesn't translate on zoom, right? Like the audio gets really weird. As soon as you kind of make that oming sound, I feel like that's the type of thing that does well in person. And I think just people getting back into the studio, I know for the studio in Canada, they did a, a workshop with a teacher, like a somatics teacher, um, who came from the States. And they were like, look at, we're not streaming this online. It's just it's just too complicated. Like we need to be able to move through the room. We're going to try to fill it. And I know the studio owner said that was a moment for him where he was like, this is the first time I felt this since pre-pandemic. And so I think that it might just take, you know, like you said, workshops or maybe some programs or maybe some special events that, that aren't hybrid or that have maybe that like you know, a touch element to them if people are comfortable and if people aren't, they just won't come. Right. You can still have things that are, that are inclusive for everyone and everyone's comfort levels and still offer those hybrid opportunities. But I think it'll kind of take just people getting back in the studio. And, you know, another thing that occurs to me is the accessibility and inclusivity that online yoga, hybrid yoga could potentially offer different populations. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the, so I've given a Heyman coming in to talk to me about accessible yoga, a term that he brilliantly coined and has written a book about, et cetera. And so I wonder what he, I'm sure actually he'll talk about this because he's written about it in his books. The idea that all, so all things being equal in the sort of Wi-Fi accessibility realm, which sort of policy-wise is a problem. I don't know how it rolls in Canada, but here I ask the question, like, how is Wi-Fi not free? Like, how is it not a utility that we pay a very low price for the way we pay for water, the way we pay for gas, et cetera. But let's just say all things being equal, being able to offer an online yoga class to somebody who does not a working parent who is solo, (laughs) a single working parent who cannot drive to a studio and park and what pay babysitting fees also on top of the 20 plus dollar class. There's no way. And Mm -hmm. so I think that we have a huge opening here for not just people who have socioeconomic disadvantage for attending classes, which is such a first world privilege. It's just not something that the majority of people, I'm so interested with all of your travels, with your thoughts on that, because maybe check me there and tell me if, if I am sort of seeing something other than what you've experienced. But it just seems to me that we have such a huge opening to open yoga up to people who otherwise would not have had access to it, not just from a socioeconomic front, but also from an ability front. People mm-hmm. who, I mean, I have a student uh, um, who is a person with cerebral palsy who found me through some YouTubes I put up during COVID. I've never met him <laughs> and yet I am teaching him. And I have a, 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 a person who is deaf who takes my classes, who thanks to all these innovations in Zoom is able now to sort of, you know, give the, um, the, the transcription live. 
Now for her and for me, of course, it would be better if we were in person together, but it it's almost the same benefit because she's able to practice the same way everybody else does. And same with um, this person with cerebral palsy that I teach. So I'm just thinking about these accessibility issues and wonder what you've seen there, what you've learned from your vast array of teachers and studios that you talk to. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that there is a lot of opportunity with this. And I think that I've heard from, you know, many different people who reach different demographics that have said very similar to what you've said. And I think just, I'll just speak to my own experience of like, you know, I mentioned that I had a baby earlier this year. And when I was like, you know, late into my pregnancy, I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to battle traffic. I didn't want to sit in the car pregnant. On top of that, I live in Mexico. So, you know, I live in a very safe area, but there are safety concerns. So I am cautious, especially while I'm pregnant about, you know, going places late at night by myself, like a yoga class. And I was able to find a teacher who taught prenatal yoga online. All I had to do was roll from my bed to my mat. Like that was a real gift when I was 40 weeks pregnant. Exactly. And then she took the group that we were working with once we like all had our babies and she created a mom and baby class. And would I have liked to go in person and had my baby interact with the other babies? Yes, of course I would. I would like that. But at the same time, it's like, you know, my baby needs to nurse. It's like super easy for me to nurse her. She needs to get her diaper changed. Cool. I just put my video off and I go change her diaper. She needs to sleep. I just go put her in her crib and then I can keep practicing yoga. You know, like there's a lot of things, even with a situation like that. And, you know, I'm doing primary childcare. So for me, unless I have somebody watching my baby, I can't go to a yoga class unless I can take her, which most people don't want babies in their yoga classes. Right. So, you know, just speaking from my own, my own perspective and I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not suffering from, you know, any type of disability, you know, able-bodied and, you know, I have the socioeconomic means, which is a blessing and stuff like that. So there's the, there is all of that for sure. But just, to speak from that perspective of like online yoga is a real gift for me. Cause I think that I just would have done my own self-practice had I not had that because I really just didn't want to leave the house. I, I showed up to most of my prenatal yoga classes in my pajamas. <laughs> right. Perfect. <laughs> Why would you wear anything else? <laughs> yeah. Really and like, you know, you can get away with a lot when you're super pregnant, but I feel like leaving the house and only like your boxer shorts and like a t-shirt where your <laughs> belly is kind of sticking out at the bottom is like this not is totally, <laughs> it's a little bit like what's the true. pregnant lady doing over there? She will. Right. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's such a great story. And it just, it makes me think about these different ways that yoga is, you know, being applied and being internalized by this growing community of yoga practitioners, you know, there were, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are. I mean, we're sort of at 50 million and counting in the United States of people who say that they have taken at least one yoga class or two in the last month who identify as being a yoga practitioner. And I do wonder if with yoga studios closing some of them, not all of course, and Oh man, in a different podcast, it would, I mean, this would be like super wonky business of yoga, but I'd love to understand how some other time, you know, Canadian yoga studios were able to keep moving through the pandemic versus American yoga studios. I only know the sort of top line sort of news on what in our case were called PPP loans and yours may have been called something else and how yoga studios, many of them the ones that didn't really have the resources to understand or the time to understand how to apply for those, to get the loans and to frankly figure out how to stock some of that money away, sock some of that money away um, while they were paying rent to landlords, for example, who wouldn't let them not pay. I mean, when nobody was coming in, that kind of thing. I mean, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of yoga studios in the United States, or at least on the East coast, that wound up having to continue paying rent during the pandemic when not one single soul was allowed by law to come into the studios. And so I think about these different types of yoga classes, and I wonder if it takes you back in the midst of this change or this shift that we're seeing in the market to what it was that drew you to your first set of yoga classes. What really, because you could have had your business degree 
and gotten interested in, I don't know, flower arranging or in who knows what, like paving roads. I mean, there's so many things you could have been interested in, but it was yoga that got you and turned you into a guide and a conversant in the business of yoga and helping all aspects of the yoga business, studio owners, teachers, you know, I've seen in your podcast, people that have come in and talked about how they've evolved their teaching from teaching like an Ashtanga based class to now like yin. I mean, there's so many different innovations happening in yoga teaching. So maybe let's spend the last, you know, few minutes of the podcast talking about what it is that keeps drawing you back in and what you see that keeps drawing people back into this thing we call yoga, the yoga practice. Yeah, for sure. I love this question. And yeah, I mean, I was first introduced to yoga when I was, I was a competitive dancer in high school. And one of the girls I danced with, her dad was a yoga teacher. And so he came in and did, we always did on Saturday mornings, we would start by doing like stretching and strengthening. And then we would get into like all of our practice for competitions and stuff like that. And he came in one day and did a session with us. And I remember being like, a yoga teacher, like what on earth type of career is this? You know, like I was like 18 or whatever. And little did I know, right. I had never done it way too Zen for this competitive dancer (laughs) for sure. And I'm like, I'm super flexible. You know, I'm a teenager. It's like my body doesn't ever hurt. It's like, I have no concept of this. So I just kind of thought it was like sort of boring. And then I went to university and I stopped dancing and I was really not exercising very much. I had no concept of like what to do at the gym. I think I'd gone to the gym a couple of times in my whole life. And my mom was like, well, why don't we start doing yoga together? And I was like, "Mm, not really super into that. And she's like, well, I'll pay for it. And I was like, "Mm, okay. You know, still I'm 18 and clearly that's what (laughs) motivated me at the time. And, you know, I started going and I've, when I tell this story, it's like so funny to reflect on because I was really that person who was like, okay, well, I need to work out, you know? So the teacher would say, you know, allow yourself to settle into the pose, relax your muscles. And I'd be like, you know, clenching things and super tight and tense. Like I'm not going to relax my butt. Like I'm here for a good butt. Like I got to tone this booty. And I just find it so funny because 18 year old me is so different from like mid thirties me where, you know, now I'm like, Oh, I got to clench the butt. I don't really want to do that. I'm just a little tired, you know, but I started doing that. And I was like, okay, there's something to this. It's kind of interesting. I got into hot yoga. Hot yoga was much more my speed at that point, just very fiery, busy. That's what I was looking for. And it wasn't until I started working in corporate that a girlfriend of mine who'd never been to yoga got gifted a pass. And she was like, will you come with me? I'm really nervous. I don't know what to expect. And I was like, yeah, sure. I've done this before. Like, I'm happy to go. And I started going with her. And what I realized was how much I just needed this time on my mat this hour for me where nobody was asking me for things. Nobody was talking to me. Nobody was, you know, there was no expectations. I didn't have to look in the mirror and, you know, think about what I looked like or what I was going to wear. I just had this moment for myself. And the more that I did that, the more I craved it. And that's really kind of, I think I, I couldn't have put my finger on it at the time of what it was, but it was like, I needed what was deeper than the physical. Like I came for the physical, I I did it for so long because I could sweat, I could work out, especially in hot yoga. You know, I felt good physically doing it, but what really kept me going was the mental aspect of it. And I think it wasn't until probably close to doing teacher training, which would have been a couple years after this, that I connected with that. Like, you know, this is good for my mental health. Like this is helping me become a better person. This is helping me not be somebody who's, you know, fingering somebody in traffic because they cut me off or honking my horn or yelling (laughs) at somebody like that's not who I have to be. You know, I don't have to be fiery and I don't have to be angry. I can be gentle and soft and feminine and I can have these spaces where I can just get to know who I am, right? Like being in your early twenties is so uncomfortable. It's such an uncomfortable time. I think teenage years are a little more uncomfortable, but early twenties are very, much like figuring out who you are. And I feel like so much of that happened for me on my yoga mat. And that's what kept me coming back. And I think now that's what it continues to be. Like my practice is very unconventional. I get on my mat every day in some shape or form. I put my little baby girl with her bouncy station or with some toys and she, you know, 
plays around, plays with the balls I use to roll up my feet and my back and stuff like that, or plays with books. And so it looks very different, but it's usually just like I put on some tunes and I just intuitively feel into my body. So it's not anything that people would be like, oh, you're doing a yoga sequence or something like that. It's just whatever my body needs. And sometimes that's just sitting and breathing, you know? Um, Completely. I've told so many new mothers. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, please. I was going to say, I think that's what we need. Like to me, that's what the world needs, like a big, deep inhale and a big, deep exhale. And we need to just keep doing it over and over. And for me, I really feel like my work isn't done helping teachers, helping individuals until every person on this planet is practicing yoga. Like not just like, oh, I've heard of this yoga thing, but like they're doing it, you know, they're breathing deeply. They're feeling into their bodies because they really do feel like for me, the, the shift in who I became was dramatic. It was very different in terms of how I dealt with situations, conflicts, challenges, how I showed up with my friends in my romantic partnerships, partnership, (laughs) um, at work, all that type of stuff. Um, just by, just by showing up on my mat. And so I really think that the world would be a better place if we could do that. And to me, that's like, that's my mission. And in this current moment, I'm doing that by helping other teachers get their stuff out there. And, you know, it's so funny. We were like off to the races with the conversation. My, one of my first questions, which I didn't explicitly ask was what is your mission and, you know, your values, but you've just said it to bring the whole world into a practice of a long, slow, deep inhale and a long, slow, deep exhale. And all of the attendant changes that occur from that. Is that sort of basically what you were just saying? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. You put that very beautifully. Uh, I mean, well, I've been at this a while and I share that vision and that goal so much. Um, It's so interesting because another thing you said early on in the podcast, and this is probably the best place to end. And I wrote a little note about it actually was you talking about, you know, yoga businesses, studios being more feminine, more heart centered. And um, there was another word you used. I can't remember what it was. But I loved that. And I kind of want to go all the way back to the beginning when you said that and amplify it, because that is in my career also uh, what I've seen and what I really believe in a subversive, I don't know if that's really the word, but maybe I'll just go with it, you know, subversive way that we're doing here. I think one of the reasons why it's really hard to be in your 20s as a woman is because you're a woman in the world working in your 20s and trying to figure out what it is that will nurture you over time and take you on where wherever your journey will take you. And there's a lot of hard aspects to living in, I guess, an un- reflective or a a kind of a life where you aren't able to give yourself that self, that time and space to identify what happens in your body when you give it the space and the time to just exhale and Mm -hmm. to find where your muscles and bones and organs and everything else can go. When you do apply that deeper breath, I sometimes wonder on a really basic level, if the sort of secret sauce of yoga is just the breath. I wonder sometimes, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it is. I think that that's like the heart of heart of what it is. And obviously there's other aspects, right? The other limbs of yoga that really become important with it. But I do feel like in the society that we live in, whether you're a parent or a partner or a friend or an employee or a business owner, we have so many demands on us and on our attention And it's really hard to justify when your to-do list is a hundred things deep and you've got a kid that needs bathing or feeding or whatever they need from you, you need feeding to just say, I'm just going to take a few minutes to breathe. Right? Like how do we justify that time for ourselves? Yet once you do, you're like, oh, I'm a better partner, a better mother, a better father a better business owner, a better employee when I do this for myself. And yet it's like, even for me, my work is reminding myself that meditating for five minutes is going to help me show up better. Right. It's like, totally. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. Isn't it? I know. And I feel like we could go on and on, but I'm just thinking back to the the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, shut down, we all fell off the cliff together. And I was like, the only way 
that I am going to show up for this and be here for my children whose faces are just going to, they were little, they were all both single digit at that, like melt into the screens, you know, taking classes is to get up every morning and do pranayama. And there was just no way around it. It was like this pull from somewhere deep in the universe was, which was like, you have to do this in order to stay grounded. And that's a word that hasn't even come up in our conversation, but it's just been so grounding and interesting and inspiring to talk to you. And I wonder if there's anything last you want to say about it. There's again, so many things left on the cutting floor as it, as it, as it were, but anything last you want to say about our talk today? I just want to say thank you. I mean, this was just a really, really wonderful conversation. I feel like a lot of times when I talk about the business of yoga, it's like, you know, we talk about email newsletters or social (laughs) media. And I love that this was just like more, it was more deep and yet more esoteric at the same time. And I just really, really love your style of interviewing. And I'm just really grateful for this time together. So I just want to say that. I feel the same way. And I'm so glad to have met you. And Anybody can go get all of that really good advice for you on emailing and marketing and the sort of shrewder aspects of business as a result of this call. So I hope they do. I always like to dig deep into it because I'm always asking ourselves sort of, you know, again, what are we doing this for? I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm teaching yoga and I'm not arranging flowers. Not that I would not also love to do that in some alternate universe. That would be really fun. But, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm doing it in an alternate universe where I can keep succulents alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't even get me started. I've been recently moved to Denver and how many plants I've killed since I got here after the humid, like climbs of DC. It's just, it's, um, it's humbling. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. on that, <laughs> on that note, so great to have you, Amanda Kingsmith. Thank you so much. And I look forward to the next talk. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This show was produced by Alyssa Yaroshevsky and me, and the music is original music from my former band, Governess. Please share what you liked or wanted to know more about from this podcast, please take two minutes to review it. If you have the chance from wherever you do get your podcasts, send me an email directly to Kim at weekswell.com to start a dialogue about how you practice well and what practicing well looks like in your life. You can follow us on weekswell.com, follow us on weekswell in many different iterations between Facebook, Instagram, and uh, Twitter and TikTok, you'll find us there, either weeks.well or weeks underscore well. See you next time. Bye.